Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for Wednesday, middle of the week, on the 16th of March. We're into St. Patrick's Day tomorrow and warm temperatures as well. We talk on the show about daylight savings time and the potential to go there full-time. This is gaining some steam. The U.S. Senate voted unanimously. When's the U.S. Senate vote unanimously on anything? Not very terribly often. Let's be blunt about that. We'll talk about the latest from Russia and Ukraine with the potential for a settlement and the potential for negotiations getting closer. Maybe Vladimir Putin sees a way to sell a W to his people and to stop bombing the people of Ukraine. But what's in it for Ukraine? I think some fascinating chess matches are happening at the negotiation table right now, and we'll talk about that. Our Chatterbox segment with Mike Drolet and Kelly Cotrera, 640 Toronto's own. And lots more. So check it out. The Toronto Today podcast begins now. So um, I made a, a point yesterday. It was at the uh, gymnasium. And uh, and I made it a point to, to sort of stop what I'm doing, unplug all my, uh, all my little music tunes and my playlists and my Spotify and whatnot to listen to Volodymyr Zelensky. And I did that right here, by the way, on the Radio Player Canada app on 640 Toronto. I did that. I was listening to it live, watching him in the House of Commons. I, uh, I have observations. Justin Trudeau was very excited to introduce him. Now, there were other MPs. It's it's difficult for 338 MPs, and not all of them were there. Important to note that. 338 MPs to have the same level of excitement. But honestly, it, it really was like, for them, having the coolest kid in your school come to your birthday party when you're 9 or 10. That was the expression I saw. That was some of the, the tweets. An hour from now, we're going to talk to MP Charlie Angus uh, from the New Democrats, get a real sense as to what he thought of the proceedings, because I found it interesting. I found it more of a talking to than anything else. I think there's some appreciation from Zelensky um, for understanding that that Canada has, uh, in Canada, it has always been a world leader when it comes to human rights. You can point to this and point to that. We're, we're not without criticism. Um, none of us are as people. We sure aren't as a country. And we can point to this, that, and the other thing. But when it comes to Western democracies, we almost uniquely, regardless of government, step up and do those right things. We do. Okay. I know it's been a long year and a half. I know we have a lot of interior questions, obviously, still about um, truth and reconciliation and residential schools, and we should. So I'll separate that out of the mix. It's not nothing. It's incredibly important, and it is something. But when it comes to refugees, when it comes to supporting causes worldwide, Canada tends to show up. But what I saw yesterday was very much a talking to uh, from Zelensky. Here's how it really gets going. And I thought it was interesting. Zelensky making the plea. Now, this is through an interpreter to, to keep doing what we're doing, but also a need to do more. Basically, what I'm trying to say that we all need to do, you all need to do more to stop Russia, to protect Ukraine, and by doing that, to protect Europe from Russian threat. They're destroying everything, memorial complexes, schools, uh, hospitals, uh, uh, housing complex. They already killed 97 Ukrainian children. We're not asking for much. We're asking for justice, for real support. Now, I watched some of the faces at, 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 in the House of Commons, and some people seem to be following along and, and were kind of surprised. I saw, and this is just me reading body language, the tone of, of sort of a very much like, oh, we didn't realize it was this bad. Now, I, again, you could go out with 
like you could go for breakfast later this morning and you could pick 10 different friends. Let's say you're, you're spending half an hour with each of the 10 friends. You know who you could talk to Ukraine about. You know who you could talk to world issues about. And you know who you have to keep it a little more elementary with. Not every MP is going to be as up to snuff on world issues. That's okay. But Zelensky had said coming into this, and coming into this chat yesterday, where he's a guest of the House of Commons, virtually that is, a million times over that the West wasn't doing enough. He has said it. He's not He's not asking. He's telling the West and countries like Canada that there's a moral obligation, not just to stand by, not just to provide weapons. Remember, at first, we were providing blankets and goggles and food packs, and that wasn't nearly enough. They want to fight. They want to fight, and they want to win. And uh, today, the ask is believed to be, and, and it will be uh, accommodated, $800 million in weaponry provided by the United States government. Now, I'm not saying we haven't done any of that with weapons, but we obviously can't compete with giving out $800 million to a foreign country. We can't just do that out of nowhere, but we can do more than we've doing. And this, that was a talking to. Zelensky wasn't in the House of Commons to make friends yesterday. And he'll do today, by the way, in the United States, um, in, at, on the Capitol, virtually again, what he did yesterday in downtown Ottawa, and that's make the point that what if this was you? What if this was your family? What if this? What if the husband had to stay behind and fight? Okay, um, <laughs> whether he wanted to or not, and he watches his family, his wife and child, or wife and children, no matter how big or small, get on a train and look for refugee status somewhere while you start to learn how to shoot RPGs. Um, what if that was us? Okay. Um, that's, that's pretty significant. And he made that point yesterday, invoking some of our cities. Imagine that someone is taking siege lane siege to Vancouver. Can you just imagine them for a second? And all these people who are left in such city. And this is exactly the situation that our city of Mariupol is suffering right now. And they are left without heat or hydro or without means of communicating, almost without food, without water. Seeking shelter in bomb shelters. Unbelievable. I mean, I thought it was just the most brilliant 12 minute speech imaginable, and it left a huge imprint on me and people I talked to yesterday who saw it just couldn't believe it. But it was it was always going to be what it became. It was going to be raw. It was going to be emotional. It wasn't going to be diplomatic. It was this is happening right now. We're not having an inquest as opposed to what happened. We're not foreshadowing or forecasting what could potentially happen. This is in the now. It's happening in real time. Now, I mentioned before 6 o'clock, only a couple more minutes on Russia-Ukraine, but it's critically important. Um, I mentioned that there seems to be some prospect for peace talks. Some people don't like the sound of that, but others say whatever stops the bombing, whatever stops these anti-humanitarian actions, whatever stops children from being murdered hospitals and and uh, and nursing homes and maternity wards from being bombed and they are there's not much disinformation going on again U ukraine is going to have their spin i got it i understand that's how conflict works that's how the media work i got it but these things are happening there's not many doubting that rohit katru is the global security editor for itv news he was on just a couple hours ago with our friends from good morning britain and documented the fact that Russians and Russian generals and Russian military leaders keep getting killed by Ukrainian forces on the ground. It's happening over and over again. Ukraine is winning that particular battle. 
uh, what we heard last night was that a fourth Russian major general has been killed on the battlefield. That's significant because, firstly, it's interesting that those major generals are so far forward. Um, but also what we're told from um, our, our Western uh, intelligence sources is that they believe that around 20 major generals uh, were sent from Russia into the battlefield. And if four have been killed already, then that really very strongly indicates that uh, the Russians um, aren't uh, winning this war in a sense. They know they can't win. They're losing it, and they're losing it badly. The idea of 20 important military figures in Russia being dead, and, and some have been fired already, and some have abandoned their tasks and have gone AWOL, okay? That's not getting discussed enough because there's just so much in the air and so much in the ether about what's happened already. Katru continues on to note exactly what we're talking about this morning, that there's probably, and I'd estimate... What are we talking? Four weeks ago, this started three weeks ago, four weeks ago. It is four weeks ago. The prospect for peace seemed unthinkable. It's more. I think it's more real this morning, waking up, watching some of the coverage last night, driving in, listening to some of it um, from NPR, from BBC World Service, from other places. I'm starting to think that there's more of a realistic sense of it. And he agrees. However, what we're hearing from uh, the Ukrainian side is this sense of perhaps optimism that might be overstating it um, about the potential uh, for peace talks, which continue today and what may be achieved in the next few days. Um, you know, it's fairly typical to see this increase in bombardment. Uh, uh, as a backdrop to this kind of conversation, uh, you know, as regards peace talks. Look, there's two things there. One, um, that's promising. Two, oh, of course it is, right? To stop the bombing, to stop the mayhem, uh, to stop the horror of all of this. It is horrible. There's that. That's the only word that fits the description of what's happening here. Now, would it be a mistake to allow Ukraine to get bullied into a settlement? Of course it would. They want the win as well for their people. The win is simply for everything to stop. But then what happens then? Reparations? There's been, there's been major damage. There's been lives lost. There's been infrastructure destroyed, power lines, hydro, um, just the way the Ukrainian economy, which was, again, it was not a poor nation. This was not a struggling nation to feed their population, to, to uh, you know, make sure everybody could afford a house and a car, uh, or at least most people could. So Ukraine can't get bullied here. Um, this is a Russian dictator who has expansionist principles. He's either going to reach. This is like the shark going um, off the beach, going back out in the water. You don't know when the shark is coming back. You don't know. And so the concept is, well, yeah, it'd be nice in a perfect world. Putin loses in Ukraine and Putin isn't in power anymore. You, I mean, you can't let him wiggle off the hook. But right now he's not on the hook. And that's a problem. But he may want to stop, take this back to his own people and claim a win. But maybe while the peace talks are happening, um, I see th that uh, that there are people weighing in on this who are foreign secretaries for, for European countries. Maybe they should sit this out for right now because it'd be great to say, well, we can't allow. We have to make sure Putin loses. You're not the one doing the fighting. You're not the one on the ground. You're in London. You're in Amsterdam. You're in Munich. You're not you're not in Kiev trying to defend a city and a capital right now. And they are. So it, it kind of is up to the Ukrainian people. This was their fight. 
This isn't one they wanted per se, but they were ready to engage in it and engage they have. But you don't get to tell them what the best settlement should be. They get to decide that on their own. Let me go get to this really quick. Um, yeah, we've been, what, 16 days in since getting things open. Vaccine mandate gone, passport gone, capacity limits gone. We remember that feeling two weeks ago, March 1st, where we kind of stepped out a little bit. And I know mask mandate coming next week. It's been quieter about the mask. Um, here's the numbers. Hospitalizations in Ontario on March 1st were 914. Yesterday, the province announced 688. That's good. ICU beds for COVID, either there because of uh, COVID, that is the main reason, or incidentally because of COVID, 234 on March 1st, down about 50, 53, uh, 63 rather, to 171. I'm even underestimating how good it is. This is a success. Got to separate the politics out of this. There are those rooting for chaos here. There are those rooting for another variant. I think it's one of the most unconscionable things imaginable, but politics can be that way sometimes. Hospitalizations dropped and ICU beds dropped, both positive numbers. I do think we could experience a bit of an uptick in April, but it won't be because you're not showing your vaccine mandate anywhere or you're not wearing a mask to walk into a restaurant or you were or were not at a Leafs or Raptors game. It won't be because of those things. It'll be because of unvaccinated older people or unboosted older people with pre-existing conditions and comorbidities. We have to get back and have a campaign to sort all this out. And we haven't thought about that. There's been so much energy to talk about kids and schools and teachers and unions and all that stuff. Let's boost the vulnerable. We've done so little of that. This also uh, caught my eye, and it's these two guys in London. London's two public health officials, two top public health officials, were paid almost $900,000 and added overtime last year. This is incredible. London's medical officer of health, who is no longer the medical officer of health, he resigned earlier this month, Dr. Chris Mackey, was paid in overtime. He submitted 681 hours of overtime last year. 681. So even if he worked every single workday, seven days a week, and took no vacation, that's about two hours a day extra that he's submitting for. He'd be getting paid anyway a salary, which would assume some 10, 12-hour days. So that's $106,000. His assistant, Dr. Alex Summers, sometimes the assistants work harder. I'm well aware of that. Alex Summers was the associate medical officer of health last year. Now he has Mackey's job. First of all, he makes a salary of about $400,000. Okay, great work if you can get it. And Summers submitted for eight hundred forty eight. Four oh hours of overtime, just under a hundred three thousand dollars right there. Are there any checks? I'm not suggesting that this hasn't been a difficult job, and then there isn't extra work, hard work, longer hours, maybe weekends. But you're working. Let me get this straight. You're working almost three hours a day, every day, every day, three hundred sixty-five days a year, every day with no vacation. I mean, I would think these guys would would uh, belly up to maybe five six weeks vacation. I would think that they would, um, and, and and if that's the case, they're getting closer to four hours of overtime that they're billing a day. Who pays for that? The overtime ferry? No, you and I do. This is huge, huge overtime billing, and if they're doing it, do you think they're the only two in the province that have done this so far as medical officers of health? I doubt it. I doubt it very strongly. It's really interesting and a story that I think people are going to be talking about a little later on today. I mean, again, great work if you can get it. 
did uh, did, did these guys parachute out of a plane like a Bond villain over mountains with their overtime checks? Like, can we find them at all? Can we call them? Can we can we text them? Anything? Fax them? Send them a fax. Uh, hospitalizations and ICU beds for COVID down notably. So let's get the story on what's actually happening in the hospitals themselves. Uh, from Trillium Health Partners, we go to Dr. Suman Chakrabarty. We always like having you on. We always like checking in after a couple weeks. Uh, give us a sense as to what you're seeing. You know, we're, we're, we're pushing the fear away. We're pushing away people who, who uh, just want to spread it. And so you tell us what you're seeing in the hospital where you work. The things in the hospital right now are doing pretty well. Today is, uh, you know, over two weeks after this has happened. And we certainly have not seen anything, uh, uh, you know, close to an explosion. You know, right now in my hospital, as you know, I was one of the hard hit, if not the hardest hit hospital in the entire country. And, you know, we're doing really, really well right now. We hardly have any COVID patients admitted. There certainly are those that are, are coming in scattered, but nothing compared to what we saw in previous waves. So, you know, a lot of this is the kind of, um, you know, post uh, winter wave lull. Uh, this is by no means to say we're not going to have uh, uh, other waves of this thing. But I think the thing is that, uh, you know, have gone over that Omicron wave, a lot of, uh, you know, post infectious immunity on the ground is a very different situation than it was uh, a year ago. That acquired immunity, um, I, you know, you and I have conversations about it. And uh, and and I even saw I, I thought it was a big statement almost that the president of the United States made that mention of it a, a few weeks ago in the State of the Union address. But I know I've 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 hit you on this before um, and I don't know that the answer is any different. What is why do we struggle with our public health officials? Why do we struggle struggle with health ministers federally and provincially? talking about just how much uh, the, the high quantity of acquired immunity Omicron should have given us. It cascaded over over us. We knew how awful it was going to be. We knew what it was going to do. We knew how uh, nervous it was going to make everybody for those six, seven weeks. But we don't have enough conversations about the fact that it, that it did that to us. Yeah, it's true. You know, I think I mentioned this to you before. It was strange to me why the idea of uh, immunity after an infection was a controversial issue. I wonder if it has to do with the fact that it made it might have discouraged people from getting vaccinated. I don't think that's really the case. But it is true that, you know, as we found out more with time, that uh, post-infectious immunity is quite robust and it's at least as good, if not in certain situations, better. Uh, And together, the um, vaccination after um, being immunized or vice versa, is very, very robust. I think this is really important because, number one, you need that, uh, especially in the unvaccinated cohorts, to provide that uh, immunity wall and not have gaps. And you see in places like Hong Kong and New Zealand and places that didn't have a lot of uh, post-infectious immunity on the ground, you know, Omicron or Delta can really rip through there and cause trouble. So uh, it's important that this needs to be part of the equation, especially going forward with any new um, uh, vaccination programs or if you're looking at the uh, immune uh, levels, et cetera, et cetera. That's uh, Dr. Suman Chakrabarty chatting with him. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter, by the way, at Toronto ID Doc. Let's go to Hong Kong really quick because you mentioned it. What are your observations of that? The, the numbers I saw uh, before we chatted were um, they've only got over 80. Um, they've got a very, very low vaccination rate. Even over 70, they don't. The 40s and 50s are in are in good shape. They're not Ontario uh, rate, but uh, but they might be like, say, some southern states. Vaccine uptake, and I don't know if that's availability or access, uh, but and I also know that masks, they are highly reliant on masks in the culture and were from the beginning. But this goes as well to, to speak to 
the danger in equating the mask. The mask was a useful tool to get us over certain hurdles and through certain steps, and especially before vaccination. But um, anybody equating the mask with a vaccine saying, well, I don't need a vaccine. I've got a mask. Um, you're asking for trouble. You've been asking for trouble for a, a long time now. Yeah. And, and you know, like I, I have to say that uh, pre COVID, uh, pre pandemic, you know, what we had for influenza, the uh, evidence for masking in the community was not really that strong. And, and this is why it's important that immunity was very, very important. And we have to remember, I, I, you always use Ontario and uh, GTA specifically as a great example of in our fourth wave with the Delta. We had a bit of a wavelet, whereas many other places around Ontario and other parts of the world were having big waves. And one yeah. of the reasons for that was we had so much exposure here in Peel, especially that people already, even if they were unvaccinated, had immunity. And that's the problem in places that had the COVID zero strategy, New Zealand, Taiwan, Hong Kong, uh, we're about to see China, is these places had um, you know, they're starting to see cases, but they don't have that wall of post-infectious immunity. And especially in the elderly population, which we know, even with a milder variant, they're still at high risk for sickness without immunity. That's what we're seeing. And it's really sad uh, to hear the stories coming out of there. It's terrible. Um, it's terrible. Would you say then, based on that, that COVID zero, not only at the in, in its concept, um, was not possible, but we look now and we think it, it was even harmful. That, that was obviously vis-a-vis almost. It was like, a, you know, two boxers in different sides of the ring. Here's here's COVID zero. Here's the great Barrington declaration. And and I've told you before, I think I think GBD has tremendous risks pre-vaccination in terms of taking out a lot of vulnerable people. But if those people can get vaccinated, then our goal needs to be focused protection. When I look at COVID zero, when you lay that out there, Dr. Chakrabarty, I think not only was it not feasible, um, it's it's made COVID a lot more harmful for a longer period of time in some of these countries. Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I talk a, a lot with my colleagues, you know, very well, Drs. Bogach and, and Chagla. And we mm-hmm. often say you pay now or you pay later when it comes to immunity. And if you don't have that accrued immunity, you're, you're going to pay in some way. And I think that, you know, uh, uh, places that uh, didn't have anything, so the extreme of that would be the COVID zero um, approach. You can see how as time has gone on, as the variants have become more transmissible, it's taken more and more and more effort to try to keep it at bay. And now you just can't. And, you know, China is already starting to explode. Hong Kong has in the last week or so. You know, the one silver lining, it does get, go up quickly and come down quickly, but at what cost? They're going to have trouble with that. So again, I think the big thing for us to remember is that you have a huge age gradient where people over the age of 60 are at a lot higher risk of uh, of uh, death and sickness. And immunity is the way out of this. And you need that in some way, whether it's through the vaccine or, or uh, infection. Um. I'm very much on one side of making masks optional in schools. I think that's patently obvious um, and, and have been for at least a few months, um, if not closer to the beginning of the of the of the school year, I suppose. But but I think we all want to see how September, October would go. So I, I, I haven't been a zealot about this from the get go. But the one thing I'd ask you is the, the one thing I struggle with is I, all I want to hear from the other side is give me some metrics. Give me give me hospitalizations per 100,000. Give me some kind of metric where somebody would say, here's an off ramp, because that's how a lot of the U.S. states did it. That's how a lot of the European countries decided when we reach this metric, we can go because we don't expect it to turn back the other way. 
The problem with all the yelling and screaming that happened last week, Dr. Chakrabarty, was I didn't hear metrics. I want to hear metrics from from the teachers unions. I want to hear metrics from um, the NDP and the and the liberal leaders. I have a great respect for those people. Just give me numbers by which you think if it gets to this point, we can like if you're against arbitrary dates, that's fine. But don't just say, well, let's just do this two more weeks and see what happens. Those are arbitrary dates. It's true. The the two more weeks, two more weeks is, I think, kind of always been the um, the thought about this. And look, if you want to talk about two weeks, it's been two weeks since we opened on March the 1st. And if you think about what we did March the 1st, uh, that's much more of an impact in terms of uh, contacts and uh, transmission than taking off the mask will be. You know, this is going to be tough to say, but the thing is, we have to be honest about what masks are actually doing in the community. The evidence that we had in well-done trials prior to COVID showed that they didn't really have the best evidence for um, locking of, uh, sorry, decreasing of transmission Mm -hmm. in the public. And the other thing too, is that transmission is not necessarily what we're trying to avoid. It's actually uh, death and hospitalization. And we've never really showed that masks are actually uh, uh, decreasing that. I'm not saying that you shouldn't wear one on an individual level. I think that's completely fine. But I think at this point, mandating it, especially when we have, you know, uh, the highest risk people over 95, 96% vaccinated and 90% among eligible adults, it's really hard for me to think that. And I get that people will have trepidations about it, but it's time for it to drop. And I think this is the right the right decision. Well, this is like, this sounds, but again, if I said this two years ago, I'll say it now and it'll sound strange to some listeners. It might even sound strange to you. But all of this would have sounded strange two years ago. We're going to put masks on, on five-year-olds for 17 months? Okay. but But I would say... If you wanted to prevent hospitalizations, if you if I wanted to prevent hospitals like yours from having COVID patients on in, on on ventilators or on or in intensive care, we wouldn't let anybody out of the house who was over fifty five who wasn't vaccinated or certainly boosted. But we would never do that because that would be considered draconian and a violation of of you know personal you know independence, and we would like they would complain. So so we won't do that. But then I go. But the restrictions that we're putting on five and six year olds, they can't complain. They don't really have a lot of advocacy except for their their damn parents. That's how I view that. Oh, they can complain. They just complain to, to their parents. <laughs> exactly. But yes, but we don't have to listen to all their complaints. They are children, after all. I agree with this. Yeah. Exactly. But no, but you're, you're right. And I think the one thing that we have to remember going forward is that when you have a health policy, number one, you have to show that the evidence that it works for the outcome that is important, in this case, death and hospitalization. And number two, even if it works, you have to do a society-wide risk-benefit analysis to see that, you know, you can look at this in a vacuum or you can look at in the context of other things. And if both of those things pass, then I can understand putting in the policy. But I don't think the trade-off at this point in time makes any sense. Um, I Again, this has been part of our pandemic uniform for two years. So I yeah. get why people are nervous about this. And I, I know that people full well will have a different process, but I think it's time. It's time. Uh, and, uh, you know, other places have done it. Uh, people kind of feel like Ontario is doing something different than the rest of the world. We're not. Many places have dropped it before us and they haven't gone up in flames. I think we'll be pleasantly surprised as well. And the amount of European countries that never masked anybody under the age of 12, and it it made no difference. Their waves rose and fell uh, with the rest of us. I've got one more for you, and it's about uh, the flu. I saw a doctor, a guy I I respect, noted that influenza A detections are up. Now, I I felt like he framed it like this could be avoided. This is concerning. It's uh, he suggests it's occurring in, in young adults. But I like like as a layman, which I am quite obviously, we're all going to get sick again. 
Like, I think we have to realize that we're going to be going to hockey games again and sitting in arenas and, and traveling on airplanes and, and being in more restaurants and going to party. And, and th- that's where illness happens. If we stay at home as we've done for 23 months, most of the time, we won't get sick, but ask any, t- I, I asked my mom who taught in, in public education for 35 years. I'm like, how often were you, did you have to take a sick day? She's like seven, eight times a year. Like that happens. We get sick. It's so true. And, you know, influenza is one that, you know, we haven't really heard of for the last two years. Uh, you, you know, I don't think it's down, by the way, because we're, we're masking. I think it, there, there's an interesting dynamic that happens between viruses, uh, immunologically, and the, the way they can kind of interfere with each other. But this said, yeah. Well, mobility, exactly. too, isn't it? We just haven't gone as many places where, where you're in large gatherings, right? Absolutely. But I, th- I think, you know, look at things. We are going to all get a virus at some point in time, and you cannot stop this. And I think that um, also influenza is something that we talked about all the time before, um, uh, you know, this year. Uh, If you went to a wedding in December in 2018, you could have gotten influenza at at the wedding. These are the things that I think that we're, we're focusing too much on trying to stop something that we have no control over. But that said, in this situation with COVID, at least, this vaccine is really good at keeping you out of hospital. And that's why, you know, we, it, it's very different than uh, the situation that we had two years ago. He always brings it. Dr. Suman Chakrabarty on Toronto today on 640 Toronto. Great pleasure having you on as always. Um, I hope you're enjoying uh, March break. Uh, your house is a lot more full than it was six months ago. So I, I can only imagine the next time you want to get on an airplane, but uh, it's not, not happening this week. I appreciate you coming on. Not this week, but it, ho- hopefully soon. <laughs> Thanks for the time. Remember, negotiation is going to happen today. Keeping eyes on this uh, with uh, Russia taking a position in negotiations that seems to be a little more conciliatory. Are they still bombing the bejabbers out of major cities in Ukraine? Absolutely, they are. Uh, They're shelling certain districts. They want into Kiev. But nonetheless, is there a, you know, a, a conciliatory effort here to take something back to the table to the Russian parliament and the Russian people and for Vladimir Putin to claim anyway uh, that there's a modicum of a victory here? It does seem like uh, President Zelensky, and we'll, we'll address this in a second, in the House of Commons yesterday, he'll be speaking to the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate today on Capitol Hill virtually again. Uh, so Canada yesterday, USA Today. Um, Zelensky does document and did this yesterday. Um, and I thought it, it grew to be a bigger story by the evening, but I was kind of struck by it saying, no, NATO is not an option for us. And that was the one thing Russia attempted uh, to prevent. They're looking at maybe a more neutral EU membership uh, like Sweden has. Like Finland's not in NATO. Sweden's not in NATO. Austria is is also referenced a fair bit uh, in this. So there could be something there. None of this, none of this, uh, you know, demarcates or minimizes uh, what Vladimir Putin's done here, unleashing his offensive. Absolutely um, un- an unjustified attack. And but there's evidence now um, that he may settle for for something less than a regime change. He may settle for less than uh, being dominant and annexing. Um, a, a country of 44 million people at the time anyway, given millions of people have left. It's not 44 million people anymore. Uh, very pleased to welcome in uh, the NDP member of parliament for Timmins, James Bay. And we like when he makes time for us and we greatly appreciate it. And he was one of 300 plus MPs taking in uh, Volodymyr Zelensky's uh, message to the House of Commons yesterday. He is Charlie Angus. Charlie, thank you for coming back on the show. It's great to have you on. 
Well, thanks, Greg, especially on something as important as this. It is that, yeah, 12 minutes uh, that were, uh, you know, I stopped everything I was doing and, and was just struck by the emotion. Um, I, I know um, th- there's oftentimes world leaders address parliament uh, and it's more, um, you know, their danger is over. There's no immediate crisis. This clearly was not one of those moments. There was there was pressure put on our government to not just continue what they're doing, but to escalate the assistance. It was an extraordinary uh, address because, yes, we've had world leaders speak to Parliament in the past. We've never had someone who's in the middle of a war zone as a city is being blown apart, um, you know, basically wearing his military fatigues. And saying to Canadians, imagine, imagine if it was Vancouver, imagine if it was Montreal. It was a very, very personal speech, but a very um, proud speech, too. I mean, President Zelensky is making it clear Ukraine is not bending to this the horrific bombing by uh, Putin's war machine. I know there were people that struggled with that concept, as you note, where, um, you know, he, he makes it our job sometimes. And what we do in broadcasting is how how can we make the most people possible listening relate to it? Well, I thought Zelensky was relatable. He said, what if Ottawa Airport was bombed? What if what if the CN Tower was targeted? And that makes people wherever they live, Toronto, Ottawa, Vancouver, um, puts goosebumps on your arms. Well, I think this is one of the incredible successes of President Zelensky. He seized the moment from the beginning. Uh, he's thrown Putin's massive disinformation machine. He's like shown it to be a piece of junk because he relates it as a, as a leader in a very personal way. And I think it immediately drew the world uh, into, into the Ukrainian struggle. And for him to be uh, speaking to Parliament, for him to be speaking, you know, to U.S. leaders shows the the, the growing power uh, change that's happening. Putin is being put more and more into a corner. Uh, he's lost so much support. He's facing huge sanctions, and people are saying, "Ukraine, we, you know, you're going to make it. We got to get. We, Ukraine's got to come through this." Charlie Angus is our guest, NDP MP on Toronto Today. I know you're a big believer in um, in the human spirit and, and resourcefulness. I, you know, I, I can be, I can certainly be cynical at times. A lot of us, the last two years, right? We've we've argued with friends, family members, each other uh, about COVID and restricting this and and limiting that. We've all had our moments. But when I think, you know, th- this shows you the resolve that a country can have together. And I think most people I've talked to said. Imagine in in your subdivision uh, what would happen. Imagine in your city in Canada what would happen. We'd fight. We'd we'd fight for what was ours. And it's never had to happen on Canadian soil, at least for hundreds of years. But but we put put ourselves in those positions. Um, Ukraine is showing us that people can come together, put conflicts aside, be resourceful and defend what's theirs. It's been unbelievably inspiring to a lot of us. Oh, absolutely. And I think, you know, we're feeling really cranky and tired after two years of the pandemic, which, you know, Canada had some of the lowest death rates in the world. Like we, we Mm -hmm. came through it, uh, but we're all cranky. We're all feeling a little touchy with each other. And then we see people standing up to tanks. Uh, And I think it's really, uh, it's been shocking. It's been horrific, but it's been very, very moving. And I think what we're seeing is also the speed with which the world responded to Putin. This guy's gotten away with a lot of horrific things. I mean, he destroyed the people in Chechnya. Yeah. Uh, he thought he was going to do the same to Ukraine. But the speed with which sanctions have been happening, the support, um, Zelensky's 
real ability to 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 make those personal connections with people to support Ukraine. Uh, we're watching something unfolding before our eyes that is, you know, we're going to be telling our grandchildren. And I think what we're also seeing is the beginning of the end of the Putin regime. Um, Charlie Angus is our guest on Toronto Today. Uh, your colleague and your party leader, Jagmeet Singh, uh, did document that he thinks Ottawa should unleash harsher sanctions, more humanitarian aid. We, It's one thing we do do well, and we sure stepped up uh, with Syrian refugees, in essence, because of a crisis that Russia uh, helped create and, and certainly exacerbated. Um, what is what is what is uh, what does Mr. Singh want us to do, and and what's the NDP party perspective on what sanctions should be more harsh than they've been so far? Well, we need to target even more of these uh, the money of these oligarchs, the billionaires, the you know the the gangs uh, who basically have been running Russia for a long time. That's Putin's. Uh, those are Putin's backers. We can go after them. They're here in Canada. They're all over the world. We know that the, the targeting of sanctions is working, so we need to ramp that up. In terms of humanitarian support and the refugees, like my office is getting called all the time. People want to help. People say, you know, we'll sponsor a family. We did that with Syrian, uh, the Syrian uh, families who had to leave their horrific conflict. So we're really pushing the prime minister to, to, to move faster on this as well as making sure that we're sending as much aid as possible to people in Ukraine in the war zone. So when when Zelensky evokes uh, so much um, perspective and and so many um, uh, obviously provocative things that that could be us, uh, what what did that do for you? You've heard a lot of speakers and you've seen a lot in your time um, as an NDP member of parliament. Um, it, it must have been such a unique moment yesterday just to listen. Like like I again, I got goosebumps several times, both being impressed with him and who he is as a leader and also uh, what he's going through as a human being as well. That's a lot on a leader's shoulders. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even imagine the pressure that he's facing, you know, as his cities are being bombed, as, as Putin's trying to kill him. But what it also made me feel very proud as a Canadian uh, is, you know, again, we can whine and we complain about a lot of stuff. That's fair. That's, what, that's mm-hmm. one of the great things about a democracy. But I, I really think that Canada has been there for Ukraine. We've been there helping to train. Um, we have huge connections because there's so many the Ukrainian diaspora is so big in Canada and I just felt as a parliament that this is about people's right to make their own choices to make a decision about who is going to democratically elect them and no tyrant no thug can come in there with tanks and take that right away and and we have to be there with with Ukraine so Zelensky is reaching out I think Canada is doing a lot right now but we need to do more and we also need to keep targeting put, keep putting the pressure on Putin because this guy's in the corner mm. and he's starting to flail and I think he's starting to look uh like a the big bully who didn't is not going to win what he thought he was going to win. Charlie Angus is our guest NDP MP on Toronto today. Uh, you also happen to make the list of 300 plus. It's amazing. They had time to do that uh, given there's a war going on. Um, yeah. So you are banned from traveling into the country of Russia. What, what was your reaction to uh, making the list? Well, my daughter called and said, dad, Putin's put you on his blacklist. And I just, uh, I, I mean, at first I thought it was a joke, and then I realized, no, Putin's the joke here because, you know, we're targeting his oligarchs and what? He's targeting people like me? Ah, good. I wear that with a badge of honor, a badge of pride. 
uh, it shows me that he is trying to strike back, but he doesn't have the power to get us. I mean, he's going after Canadian uh, activists. He's going after people in the Ukrainian community in Canada. He's going after parliamentarians. Um, yeah, I wear this as a badge of honor uh, that we've really pissed Putin off that much. But while he's doing that, we're going after his billionaire friends. And that's where the pressure points are going to be. It's an odd one culturally, isn't it? Because Moscow is a beautiful city. We have a lot of young men um, that go over and play in the Continental Hockey League. I, I know a few and I know I've talked to their parents through this process. And so for again, for tourism purposes, it's it's one thing to consider. Uh, but there's I, I just th- this is the most unique scenario. We've had dictators before. We've we've had, you know, terrorist oriented dictators be on the run, the Saddam Husseins and the Muammar Gaddafis. But they know that there's no way back to to the world table. This is a G7 leader. This is a um, you know, he's at the head of the U.N. Security Council. There really is no way back. For, like, think of the Canada, Russia heritage just for hockey alone. And there's I don't know the way back for for Russia as a country and as a people back to the world table where where we accept them in in good graces. I don't yet. I I really don't see that Putin comes back to the world table in any good graces after the crimes he's committed. I think the real tragedy here is that the Russian people didn't ask for this Mm -hmm. war. We do have great connections with Russia. God, growing up, I could name every single player of the Russian team. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. I would love to visit that country someday. Uh, but no, I'm not going to go there as long as a war criminal is in charge. And so he didn't need to put me on that blacklist. He put himself on the world blacklist. So he could uh, he could put my name on there. I think he could put tens of thousands of Canadians' names on there. We will not do business with Russia until something's done with Putin. And I think that that's the pressure that he's facing internally. And I, I, I am no expert on Russian politics, but I think someone who's mishandled the mm. war as badly as he has who's caused so much economic hardship to people who are just trying to get by in Russia, uh, there's going to be payback for what he's done. And I'm hoping it'll come soon. And I'm hoping it'll come from the Russian people. Charlie Angus is our guest. I know we're running out of time, but important that I ask you about um, the Emergencies Act inquiry. Um, There's a limit of time uh, by which uh, that there can be in, uh, you know, a a committee uh, for the next 60 days after the act has wrapped up. The NDP was well documented. We are at begrudgingly was the word Jugmeet Singh used. We are begrudgingly voting for this. Two days later, um, the liberal government decided to end it. What what questions do you have? What what can we have in terms of answers about some of the claims the Trudeau government made? I know how troubling it was. I can't. I know people in Ottawa as yourself who um, it it was for the some of them it was a it was a living hell. It really was for almost four entire weeks. What answers do you want from this process? here well i i think canadians need answers we need answers on a whole bunch of fronts i i'm i'm very interested in the financing of this uh, mm-hmm. there was a lot of money that was being flowed uh to to what was essentially an occupation of the nation's capital and to bridges major bridges uh, this wasn't just anything haphazard i'd like to know how it was all structured because it was very well organized um i would like to know uh, if what happened with the Ottawa police, because this should have been handled municipally and it wasn't, it was handled in Toronto, Toronto police handled it. It was handled in Quebec city in Ottawa. It was a complete failure uh, to the point where it turned from a, a protest, turned into some, you know, uh, people blocking traffic into an occupation. I think, I think at the city level in Ottawa, we need to have some, some big answers as to why this thing just got so out of control so fast. 
Have you had have you had a conversation with the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson? I know he was he was present at times, and and once the uh, once the emergency act was enacted, he was a lot more vocal. We, we started seeing him make well a lot of television appearances that final weekend. But but he was I know Ottawa citizens telling me, Greg, he was hard to find for a couple of weeks. There needs to be more done, and and to find out. I know the police chief, the original police chief, has resigned. There's a lot of people wondering about Jim Watson and and what was happening for those four weeks. Yeah, the the mayor was missing in action, um, and I don't know what happened with the Ottawa police chief. Um, whether he was done in b- b- internally, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, the Ottawa police board seems to be, you know, been a total schlamazel. Mm-hmm. And again, at the federal level, the federal level never gets involved in a city issue. It it's it's it goes uh, city, provincial, and then federal. Um, the city dropped the ball. Mayor Watson dropped the, I, I, I can't say it in any other way. He seemed to be completely missing in action. Where were the daily press conferences that we would have expected? The, the, you know, calling on them, calling on all levels of government to work together. We didn't hear that. Um, you know, Doug Ford issued uh, an emergency declaration, which then brought the feds in. But this was like four weeks into this crazy situation. Millions and millions of dollars of businesses uh, were being damaged from like people. We couldn't, I mean, the major mall in the downtown was shut for three weeks. It's never shut. Yeah. Um, So I think, I think, I think it's fair for Canadians to say, should this have been handled at the municipal level? Because again, there were protests in Toronto. Not much happened. It was just another day. People protest. Great. Uh, But you don't shut the city down. So what happened in Ottawa? I think that that's a big question. I want to also then, how is it funded? And I think when we get a better picture, that will get a better picture whether to say, did the Trudeau government handle this right? Or was it an overreach? Or um, did all levels of government fail Canadians at this time? I appreciate you addressing it, Charlie. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, you have fun. I will. Charlie Angus uh, joining us, NDP MP. I will. I will. I will have fun. Seth Myers was on the. You know who he is. Uh, anchored a SNL Weekend Update. He does the late night show on uh, right after. Uh, what's it? Jimmy Fallon? I always forget his name. I like forgetting his name. Uh, but Seth Myers was has written a new children's book called "I'm Not Scared, You're Scared." It isn't exactly to do with the pandemic. Um, But he had a very dramatic uh, birth story with his second son. He said this, and I like this. I like this a lot about the sacrifices all our kids have made at different times for different lengths of time for adults. I love that he said this. This is his message almost to his kids. Have a listen to this. Even on a small level, you know, I do want to look back at this time and tell my kids, hey, was it you did a really cool thing? For two years, you guys wore masks when you went to school. And that was great that you did that. That was the sacrifice that you did for other people. It's a shame that moment's become so politicized because I think, you know, I grew up at a time where I think it's arguable that I never did anything or had to do anything close to what my kids just had to go through. And so I think it's nice to be able to have these moments to say, oh, yeah, you might be afraid of that, but you would you would rise above it if your brother or your sister were in danger and that's something you should know about yourself. I love that clip. I, I hope our kids, again, whichever way we align, whichever direction we're going in the next several months, especially, 
I'd like to think that that we've raised a conscientious, considerate generation of kids that had to do things uh, that we didn't have to. And, and hopefully they they can, you know, do a little bit better than we have, even as adults and taking the tone, taking the base out of the tone to some extent. I hope that's the case. Uh, anyway, I want to listen to more of that podcast. And um, if we can get Seth Myers on the show uh, to promote his book, that would be amazing. That's a big get. We'll try and uh, try and track him down. He's a friend of a friend of a friend. Um, so we'll see. There's about six degrees of separation. There, we'll see if we can do that. Uh, we have our weekly visit now with Sabina Vora Miller, pharmacologist. You probably like that clip. That's a great message to send to our uh, our younger people of any age. I completely agree. I mean, I think kids are so resilient. They're fantastic, and and watching them, you know, despite everything that's been thrown their way, watching them thrive through this has been fantastic. Um, so, absolutely, I completely agree. I mean, I think for me, you know, my childhood was definitely. Um, you know, maybe probably slightly more trickier than, than, you know, what the kids have had to go this year. I lived through wars, Mm -hmm. um, you know, as, um, as an immigrant to Canada. So um, I, for me personally, I feel like, you know, the mask for instance is, is, um, is, is is a great thing that the kids are are doing, but they're doing it for themselves as well. In addition to keeping others safe. Mm. I know you spotted an article um, and Kelly Couture, who we had on um, in our chatterbox segment at seven 30 mentioned, she's got a couple friends, uh, suffering from long COVID right now. I had a friend who suffered from uh, chronic fatigue syndrome for a good eight, nine months when I lived in the States. And it was, it was awful. Um, they couldn't, it was a, just this revolving door of not being able to sleep. So the less you sleep, the less you can focus and concentrate. You it, People say, well, get exercise. That's better. Well, they get dizzy when they exercise. So many issues and, and we're seeing, and they sure, we have to take care of them with our insurance companies. I know at least in Canada, we're doing a better job of this than the United States where there's people that their insurance won't cover long COVID in the state. So of course, these are major issues. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're getting to know more and more about long COVID now that we're two years into this pandemic, um, but definitely more research is needed because even once the pandemic ends, we'll have millions who've been impacted by long COVID and they deserve treatment and they deserve that research to go in to make sure that we can we can figure out a plan of action for them. And we know that the risk of long COVID is Fairly substantial, um, uh, you know, to be honest. I mean, if you look at data, we're seeing anywhere from between 10 to 35 percent of people um, end up with persistent symptoms. Um, and in fact, you know, you, p- people can end up with long COVID symptoms, even if they have mild infections, even if they're not hospitalized. And some of these, you know, symptoms, as you mentioned, they're debilitating. Yeah. You know, when you're looking at things like the fatigue, for instance, you know, the concentration difficulties, memory issues, you know, headaches, shortness of breath, cough, all of these are things that are really, really difficult to have a proper quality of life. And so we really need to do more research um, to understand, you know, what's the mechanism for this? How can we ensure that people are living um, full proper lives despite having had COVID, you know, a year ago. And that's not even um, really touching on to um, what happens with some of the more severe long COVID symptoms um, uh, that we're seeing. So, I mean, if you look at just cardiovascular effects, like there was a huge study that just came out um, looking at nearly 150,000 people with COVID, and then they compared it to, um, you know, current controls as well as historical controls to get a really good idea of what that burden of disease is. And they found a significantly higher risk for things like stroke, myocardial infarctions, heart failure, myocarditis, thromboembolic disease. So that's, you know, things like pulmonary embolisms and DVTs. 
Um, and mm. and this is this is going to be a huge issue because we're going to see a lot of people that there are going to need medical resources, research, um, and healthcare in the coming months. Well, and I think it's interesting because we have so little. Look, we, we, two years ago, all this started, and we were really flying blind for a bunch a bunch of months in a row. Obviously, so we took every precaution imaginably. So I think there's two ways this can, and I actually think we should do both things. We can't minimize long COVID and those suffering from it right now, but we can also be hopeful. And to your point, if we put funding in, if we put research in, um, we can not only get people back, like. Chronic fatigue syndrome, which I mentioned, is very treatable. People have to recognize the signs, and there's so much more real-world data on it decades later. But it, we're still going, you know, I, we are still feeling a, around a little bit in the dark. I'm sure there's people who say, I, I had it. It's gone. That's great. I'm doing what I can to get back. And there's people obviously really stressed out about it. Sabina thinking, I'm, I'm 38 years old. Am I like this the rest of my life? And we don't know that yet, but we have to take precautions to, to, to try and minimize the length of time they're going to suffer from it. Absolutely. I mean, I think all of our research energy really needs to be redirected now, you know, now that we have, especially things like vaccines. I mean, we know that, you know, for instance, the UK um, health authorities did a really great rapid um, review where they looked at the impact of vaccines and they found that people who were fully vaccinated were far less likely to develop long COVID symptoms mm-hmm. than those who were unvaccinated. So we know that there is something that can help. In fact, you know, people who were vaccinated soon after COVID diagnosis were also less likely to report symptoms of long COVID. Um, unfortunately, what we, we are finding is that those who had long COVID, you know, much prior to getting vaccinated in these um, people, only a very small percentage of them had an improvement in symptoms. So that is that area, that gray area, so to speak, where we really need to be investing a lot more energy into. And we're not doing a very good job of it right now. We need to invest a lot more mm. resources and dollars into trying to get some of this research up and running. I mean, if you're looking at some of the new data that's coming out, even on in terms of um, cognitive, um, you know, uh, um, impact of of, um, of COVID, we're seeing things like reduction in um, gray matter thickness in, in the brain. We're looking at tissue damage in the brain, um, and, you know, significant cognitive decline. And these are things that you really need to make sure that you're actually trying to get to the treatment uh, part as soon as possible, right? And you don't want to be, um, you don't, you don't, you don't want this to no. to drag on for so long, right? No. And then there's a, there's emotional trauma associated. Then that we're all again, we're all going to get sick again, and any kind of viral infection has the potential to make that worse. I want to get to some of the current numbers um, that we're dealing with, but I also want to bring up this uh, that I spotted, and that's the study that looked at physical activity. The headline's pretty simple for our audience. Moderate physical activity can protect against severe COVID-19 illness. And you might say, you're a smart cookie. You might say, that's obvious to me, Greg, that's obvious to you. But I do wonder, could we have heard more of that from public health? Nobody wanted to say, well, do this in lieu of you know, wearing a mask in high traffic situations, do this in lieu of getting vaccinated. But I just I worry even from March 2020 on, we didn't talk about who was at more at risk and we didn't talk about things you could do as we went along for 24 months to to ward off the potential for severe illness. Could we have done better at that? 
Yeah, I mean, I also think that when you're looking at some of this data that's showing that, you know, those, for instance, I mean, I think we're seeing even with vitamin D, right? We're seeing how people who were had lower vitamin D were having more severe symptoms. But I mean, if you actually look at the data, you don't know whether that actually has to do with underlying baseline demographics. So those who are already engaging in, you know, uh, mm-hmm. moderate um, exercise daily, they probably don't have those health comorbidities, they probably don't have the age that's working against them, right? And so you need to look at look look into the data to see whether it's actually the exercise that's helping this or whether it's just the demographics of the people who en- engage in moderate exercise that already have, um, you know, the likelihood of having better outcomes um, if they are infected with COVID. But I completely agree. I think that, you know, we need to be taking a more holistic view at what health is, what does health mean to people, right? Um, and that includes a lot of different things. That includes making sure you have exercise. It means um, having access to wholesome food, right? Um, yeah. All of these things are important. Making sure you have access to healthcare, making sure you have access to primary care. All of these actually have an impact on um, health. I mean, these. this is why, you know, many of these things are considered the social determinants of health when you look at access to healthcare, looking at housing, all of these things play a huge role in health. Health is not something that's very monolithic and it's not something that's very, okay, we're just going to look at this X outcome. It's not. It's, you know, we have to take a holistic lens and that Mm. does include things like exercise and diet. Sabina Vora Miller, our guest, that's really well said. Um, So two weeks since we dropped uh, or lifted um, vaccine mandates uh, in in some optional settings, let's say gyms, let's say restaurants. You and I have talked about it and, and some of that has just been plain theatrics anyway if you're in an indoor environment with an airborne virus if you're there you're there and the vi- if the virus is there it's there we've seen hospitalizations drop we've seen icu beds drop um can we make the case that 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 was the right time two weeks ago it got a lot of criticism um and i can't defend a lot of the timelines that the government's orchestrated the last two years in ontario but can we make the case that was the right call with dropping numbers um, I think with hospitalizations, we have to remember there are lagging factors. So I, I can comment on that. I know that we are seeing some trends of increasing hospitalization this week. So I'm going to wait to see what that data looks out like. But again, with, with mandates, I think, you know, um, for me at least, uh, it's really important to understand what the purpose of these mandates are. They're not meant to be a long-term thing. Um, vaccine passports, at least, are not meant to be a long-term thing. They're meant to be a short-term thing to do, you know, it, to, to put in place to actually drive certain things. So like with that be maybe drive uptake off being fully vaccinated mm-hmm. or you know reduce transmission in certain settings and things of that sort so you really need to have a clear purpose with passports they're never meant to be a long-term thing um and 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 i think that you know in january was the right time with omicron for us to go back to the table and say okay well we need to reevaluate this do we scrap it or do we bump it up to three doses um, and what should the plan be? And I get, and, you know, again, over here, I want to make sure that we understand that this should be done specifically um, for different settings. So, you know, a restaurant passport is not necessarily the same thing as a mandate for hospital workers. For oh, instance. no, of course not. No. You know, like yeah, exactly. They're very different situations and scenarios. So, you know, these are, I, I, there's no clear wrong or right answers with these they're very nuanced um and so i always hesitate when people take this really quick 
um, response to them that, yes, this is great or no, this is bad. Um, but I do think that there are establishments that are putting are, are continuing some of these protective public health measures. And, and I think that it's fantastic that they're doing that to support their staff, to support their patrons and clients. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think everyone moves at their own pace and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I think you made a great point. Like like we had four weeks of people in Ottawa who are either pro-mandate or anti-mandate. And I'm like, there's a lot more subtlety and uh, and, and context and gray area, like all of this. It's not, it's not as simple as let's let's have a bunch of mandates and let's have no mandates. We've, we've got to find middle ground here to protect those that are a most vulnerable. And yeah, in healthcare settings, dentist's office, all that stuff, really, really important stuff like that. I got to leave it there. I, uh, I'm fresh out of time, but loved our conversation today. Likewise. So you saw this story, Sheba, about um, guy that was going to segregate his classroom oh, and in, in the TDSP. And I'm a little surprised that he got placed on leave. I so he's, look, he's been sent home or put on home assignment, if you will. The parents that I've been speaking with, everybody's a little bit anxious about Monday because they don't know what it's going to be like. They don't know, you know, I don't think they've decided if their kids are going to go to school with masks on or how their kids are even feeling or just take the masks off. I think they're going to play go day by day. So this TDSB teacher came out and he has suggested that you segregate kids in the classroom. So the kids who are masked, masked on one side of the classroom, kids who are not on the other side and way to way to way to cause division dear teacher i think that so he's been put on leave and why are you surprised by that i just didn't think they'd act on it i didn't i, I don't mm. think that like it took long enough who was the guy that showed up with blackface on in the school in the fall and uh and they and they they still took a week yeah. to go hmm what should we do about this here and well, they, they eventually the made a call they got yeah but the backlash they got for that i think they acted swiftly this teacher has been put on leave but to even suggest and he's serious this was an actual suggestion and he did have some support uh, for this suggestion, for I guess from you know people who are nervous or against the mask mandates being removed, and yeah, he wants to split the kids up, so cause more division, uh, cause more anxiety between these kids, you know, the the haves and the have-nots, and I just think it's going in the a completely wrong direction. So we need to find a way, way to bring these kids together. Guy has completely uh, deleted his Twitter account. He just didn't yes. delete the tweets. He's so. You know, social media wise, anyway, he's on he's on the run like he's uh, he's out there um, well, as he should be, as he should be. I mean, I get it. I get that people are nervous. Let's have these conversations. Let's talk about, you know, what your fears are. Let's talk about how. We, but don't divide the kids up. Don't put, you know, the good kids versus the bad kids, whatever you think the good kids are, whoever you are, they are and whoever aren't, regardless, you know, of whatever, whatever stance you have. We're not dividing kids up. We've done that for so long. For so long, yeah. Look at the vaccine, the vaccine conversation. Like, oh, my, my kids come home now and I'm like, and they're vaccinated. But they ask people, sometimes somebody will, you know, I'll bring up like, oh, what do you say? And they're like, oh, my 11 year old said, oh, I tell them, um, my vaccine status is not your concern. And I looked at him and I said, where did you learn that? He said, oh, that's, yeah, uh, we didn't, we've never used that vocabulary at home. And he says, oh, that's what the kids at school say. That's what you're supposed to say when someone asks you that. So, the, so they're getting mm, groomed is, is a strong word, but they're getting told, you, you think, by educators to say that. I don't know if it's by educators. I don't know but, if it's by a parent who told their kid who's not vaccinated, this is what you answer. And then uh, it caught on to the rest of the yeah. class. I don't know. What, sure. It, and that's true. It is none of your concern. My vaccine status. Fine. Fair enough. Uh, but again, another way to divide the kids, masks and no masks. I don't like it. 
Let's get on with life. Let's bring these kids and, together. And I don't want this guy to lose. I don't. I don't want him to lose his job. He he brought this out as an idea. And if he's able to recognize that this and some people are making the point, well, it's just separating them, not segregating them. I'm like, what's the damn difference? Both yeah. all the words start with S S E and then you just change some <laughs> of the consonants around. No, it's but you're doing it via mask status, and that would be wrong. That would absolutely be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. we, we wouldn't do it any other way. We wouldn't put thin kids on one side of the... Uh, okay, of, okay. Let, let's no, not. I'm no. saying we wouldn't. Terrible example. No, let, no okay. let's move on. I mean, there were kids <laughs> no. that pushed ahead of me in the cafeteria line. Me and, me body and Dave. shaming. How did this become a body shaming? It's not. It's not. Now, now, me and Dave Bradley, you know, we got elbowed out of the way when it was fish and chips day on a Friday <laughs> or, or gravy and fries. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today and for finding us uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Feel free to share, subscribe, and tell a friend. We love spreading the good work we're attempting to do most mornings. Appreciate it. We're back with a live show tomorrow, which you can hear on 640toronto.com or the Radio Player Canada app or a little after the show where you're finding us right now. Thanks so much for listening.